Welcome to the Mercy Commons podcast. Thank you for joining us today. We trust that the Word of God encourages you and that the Holy Spirit empowers you. Uh, let's do this thing is one of my favorite phrases. I love that phrase. I say it a lot. And I really get excited when others say, let's do this thing, because it means the planning is over, the talking is over, the preparation is over. It's now a case of action. Let's do this thing. There's no obstacle. There's no reason for us not to, other than our desire as to whether we actually want to do it. Let's, let's do this thing. For 10 and a half chapters, the author of Hebrew has been presenting and um, getting us excited and showing us why we should be excited about this thing. And now we're in the phase of him saying, let's do this thing. For 10 and a half chapters, he showed us how Jesus is better. He is the fulfillment of the Old Testament, the law and the prophets. That everything points to him, that Jesus is the new and living way. He is the establisher of the new covenant and this is a new way of engaging with a living hope. Let's do this. So let's read from Hebrews 10, verse 19. Therefore, brothers, since we have confidence to enter the holy places by the blood of Jesus, by the new and living way that he opened for us through the curtain, that is through his flesh, and since we have a great priest over the house of God, and there are three let us's that you will see here, let us... Draw near with a true heart in full assurance of faith, our hearts being sprinkled clean from an evil conscience, and our bodies washed with pure water. Let us hold fast to the confession of our hope without wavering, for he who promised is faithful. And let us consider how to stir up one another to love and good works, not neglecting to meet together as is the habit of some, but encouraging one another all the more as you see the day nearing." In chapter 4 of Hebrews, the writer says, Let us with confidence draw near to the throne of grace that we may receive mercy and find grace in our time of need. About a year ago, um, I had booked tickets to go to an advanced conference in Europe, and my computer autofilled my ticket, and my name is Nick, but my full name is Nicholas. And so the ticket autofilled is Nick. And I go to the airport at LAX, and those of you that know who Nate Bergazzi is, I literally had the same experience. I presented my ticket to the woman, and she said to me, this is not you. And I'm like, I know this is a massive jump in logic <laughs> to go from Nick to Nicholas. I have a passport that says Nicholas. I have my passport. Uh, Driver's license that says, Nicholas, I am also called Nick. It's not like it's Nick and Jeffrey, you know. <laughs> it was not enough for her. Um, and so two hours later, um, we managed to get on our initial flight. We had another four flights to go um, during that process. What I didn't realize is that in order just to do her job, she created a new ticket for Nicholas and canceled all the rest of my tickets for Nick. I did not know that until we got to our next destination. I'm looking at Kayla here, and Kayla says, I never, ever want to travel anywhere with you. You know what I mean? <laughs> so it's like... And um, we go to this gate, and 
Um, you know, this is the place where people have missed their flights and they're trying to get other flights. And we have enough time to make our flight, maybe 10 or 15 minutes. And so the gate agent intervenes on my behalf and he says, okay, I want you to come and stand here. And he puts me in the front of the queue of a bunch of angry, angry people. <laughs> and he places me there and he says, she will take care of you. I turn around and these people start yelling at me in French, okay? Which is kind of a nice ring, but it's still a little, you know, you know what I mean? In my face, I kid you not, and they were pointing their fingers at me and yelling at me, we've been waiting for hours, etc., etc. It was so bad that there were other people that were videoing this on their phones because that's how intense it was getting. Well, the gate agents eventually stood there and he said, you stop. You guys have already missed your plane. He has a chance to make his plane. I'm going to put him in front of the queue now. You stop. And so they kind of stood back a little bit and they murmured amongst themselves. And then he took us and he brought us to the front of the security queue. And we gained access with confidence <laughs> because he was there because everyone was shouting at us. Everyone was, well, shouting at me, because Corinne had removed herself. <laughs> she was standing way over there, you know? And I, I thought about this idea when it comes to confidently entering a throne of grace where we have guilt and shame consistently shouting at us that we don't belong here. And just like the gate agent, Jesus stands and says, you be quiet. Because I have done everything that needs to be done in order for these people to come and access my throne of grace. Guilt and shame will make as much noise as they can, but they cannot affect your standing. They cannot affect your entrance into the throne of grace because he stands with you there. This morning, we're not talking about how best to fly or not fly. This morning, we're talking about what the writer is calling us into. Let's do this thing. Let us, let us, let us. He's calling us to three things. He's calling us to a confidence, a, a humble confidence in what he has already achieved. He's calling us to a, a sense of personal, intentional engagement, and he's calling us to a communal engagement. Why can we be confident? We look at the scripture and there are five key reasons why we can have all the confidence that we need. Scripture says, we have confidence to enter the holy places by the blood of Jesus, by a new and living way that he opened for us through the curtain that is through his flesh. And since we have, and we have been given a great high priest over the house of God. This is a beautiful picture of communion. When Jesus was crucified, the night that he was crucified, the temple in the Holy of Holies was torn in two. And what that signified was the fact that there was access to the so-called common person into the Holy of Holies because of the sacrifice of Jesus. Jesus' blood was poured out to pay for the penalty of our sins, and his body was broken for us, and that is the new and living way. And the good news about all of this is that this isn't just a sacrifice that needs to happen year after year after year. We spoke about this two and three weeks ago. Jesus is alive, seated at the right hand of the Father, saying, come, come. I will silence guilt. I will silence shame. 
you come. Have confidence because of the work that I have completed. We have confidence because he is the new and living way. We have confidence because we have true hearts. Scripture says, let us draw near with a true heart. And the true heart is not so much the idea of truth versus falsehood. That word does contain a little bit of it, but the, 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 the word true in there means not crooked, means straight. It means the, the ability to be true, like an arrow is true to the target, is that we have true hearts. And you may not feel that way, But the new covenant that Jesus promised, that Jeremiah prophesied, is is a reality for our lives, that Jesus has given us a true heart of flesh. And whether we experience it consciously, the reality is that His Spirit is changing our hearts to be more like Him. That there is a sense in which our behaviors, our desires, and our attitudes are being morphed by the new heart that we have received because of the sacrifice of Jesus. The third reason we can stand with confidence is because we have a completed assurance of faith. This is not our work. We have placed our faith in the completed work of Jesus because he who promised is faithful. He is the one that made the promise. He is the one that completed it. He is faithful. Fourthly, the writer goes on to say, not only do you have a new and living way which should make you confident, not only do you have true hearts, your heart of stone replaced with a heart of flesh, not only do you have complete assurance of faith, your consciences have been cleansed. As we go through the security, um, he says, okay, this is where I say goodbye. Um, He leaves us. And so we join the security line. And to make matters worse, uh, there is a strike and go slow at the security line. And so you guys know you've been to an airport, they have those snaking lines, right? And so we're sitting in the line and we're proceeding on the line and we're doing this. And then who do we see coming towards us? The same people that were behind me in the line. And what do they start doing? They start, no, this, they're not yelling this time. This time they're pointing, they're snickering, they're laughing. They're doing everything in their power to make us more uncomfortable. And we can't escape because we are in this, you know, snaky line. And so as we move further away and they move further away and then we turn around and we're moving closer and closer together, you know? I think my wife must have lost about five pounds there, you know what I mean? Because our postures were a little different, you know? Karen, like, avoided eye contact, and I just stood there like that, you know? (laughs) Which, of course, made it so much more comfortable for Karen, you know what I mean? Way to de-escalate the situation. Not only will guilt and shame shout at you that you don't belong here, but they will whisper and follow you and try to intimidate you. It'll make you feel like you don't deserve this. You know one of the best things that you can do when guilt and shame come, when the enemy starts to say you don't deserve this? You don't argue. You say, I don't. I don't deserve this. I don't deserve God's kindness. I don't deserve his grace and mercy. It's not a work that I've performed. It's the finished work of Jesus. I am gratefully accepting it. And I don't care what you whisper and what you say. 
has my, my conscience is cleansed. Now, Nick, does that mean that we, that we don't ever feel bad about anything that we do? You know, look, generally speaking, there are two groups of people. There are those who have a very sensitive conscience. So anytime anything is mentioned, people think, is that me? He's probably talking about me. Oh, dear, what have I done wrong, et cetera, et cetera. Although we have those that have like a seared conscience. I was thinking about this the other day. When something goes wrong, often my wife's response is, oh, what did I do? When something goes wrong for me, I'm like, what did someone do? <laughs> and, and part of the challenge with that is, is when, our, when, our, when, when we are embattled with the idea of, of someone coming against our conscience in terms of guilt and shame, we need to understand the difference between the condemnation of the enemy and the conviction of the Holy Spirit. And condemnation is basically saying, you, 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 there's no way out. Conviction is an invitation by the Holy Spirit. Most of the time, I would say this, anything to do with your past that has been repented of is generally condemnation. The enemy is trying to remind you of something that has already happened, that you have already expressed um, repentance of and have asked God's forgiveness and power to help him, um, to help you so that you don't do that again. But sometimes, even though my conscience is clear, Paul says, that does not make me innocent. And sometimes when we hear that, we've actually just got to ask God, is there any truth to what is happening here? I don't want to, I don't want to load this on myself, but I want to be able to respond to your Holy Spirit if there's something that needs adjustment here. And lastly, he says, our bodies have been washed with pure water, which means that even the ceremonial body cleansing uh, that the Israelites had to go through is mirrored in the act of baptism. Now, even as we did child dedications, we, well, the, the act of baptism is an act for someone that has confessed their faith in Jesus. And so we're going to have baptisms over the next month. And I want to invite you, if you've never been in a place where you have confessed your faith in Jesus Christ before witnesses and been baptized, that this is something that you should do as a follower of Jesus. Does it save you? It, it does not. It's an act of obedience after you've come to faith. You can have that for free. So, confidence is not arrogance. You know, Karen would never have followed me had she not been assured of the authority of the person saying, you can go to the front of the line there. And Jesus talks about this directly in terms of how do we confidently enter a throne of grace without being arrogant? And he talks about a Pharisee and a tax collector. And he tells this parable to certain people who had convinced themselves that they were righteous and they looked down on everyone else with disgust. Two people went to the temple to pray. One was a Pharisee and the other a tax collector. And for those of you new to the scriptures, a Pharisee was like a religious person. In a sense, their job was to follow the laws that God had put in place, the laws that the writer of Hebrews is talking about. The Pharisee stood and prayed about himself with these words, God, I thank you that I'm not like everyone else, crooks, evildoers, and adulterers, or even like this tax collector. I fast twice a week, I give a tenth of everything I receive, but the tax collector stood at a distance and he wouldn't even lift his eyes toward heaven, 
Rather, he struck his chest and said, God, show mercy on me, a sinner. I tell you, this person went down to his home justified rather than the Pharisee, because all who lift themselves up will be brought low, and those who make themselves low will be lifted up. This Pharisee is a great example of what the writer of Hebrews has been trying to communicate over ten and a half chapters. We, there's a sense in which the Pharisee is arrogant because of his self-righteousness and his self-reliance. I have done all these things or not done all these things, therefore, God, you are somehow um, obligated, thank you, Michaela, obligated to... Priscilla, okay. Someone over there. I've done all these things, I've not done these things, that means that God is obligated to deal with me in a specific way. Now, the most amazing thing about this parable for me is the fact that the tax collector went to the temple in the first place. This reminds me of the woman that poured out perfume on Jesus' feet. I cannot imagine how awkward it was for the tax collector, knowing that not only had he not jumped through all the religious hoops, but he was an enemy of Israel. He was collecting taxes for the oppressor against Israel to actually walk into the temple You know what? He realized his need for grace and mercy. That is what Jesus is saying that God responds to. The most amazing thing is that this tax collector is crying out for mercy with a sense of like, I wonder if I'm going to receive mercy. And the joy that we have is our confidence is in the finished work of Jesus Christ. It means that when we cry out for mercy, it is an absolute certainty that we will receive it. When we cry out for mercy, we have received mercy in our past. When we cry out for mercy, we are currently receiving the mercy of God. And when we cry out for mercy in the future, it is guaranteed that we will receive that. We do that not with a sense of arrogance because of what I've done, but with a sense of God, have mercy on me, a sinner. I need you. But I'm here. He drew near. He drew near. 2 Corinthians 3, verses 4 to 6, Paul tells the church, such is the confidence that we have through Christ toward God, not that we are sufficient in ourselves to claim anything is coming from us, but our sufficiency is from God, who has made us sufficient to be ministers of the new covenant, not of the letter, but of the Spirit, for the letter kills, but the Spirit gives life. It's so amazing to me that not only is it God that equips us to be able to draw near into his temple, but it is God that has equipped us to be ministers and ambassadors of this grace for other people. Not only are we welcomed as sons and daughters, but we are automatically given purpose to say, you are my messenger, you are my ambassador, you are my minister. Bring more people into this throne of grace Because the door is open, the temple veil has been torn, and there is a new and living way. What a thrill. It should thrill us not only that we don't have to jump through these hoops, but that that we are representatives of this kingdom, the new and living way. Our confidence can be firm, it can be humble, and it can be multiplied. Secondly, this, this morning, uh, I want to talk about what it means to be personally intentional. After we got through security, 
we didn't take a saunterly walk to our gate. We ran. We had to, because there was no way that the gate agent could do anything about the time that the plane was taking off. And so we had to use our own energy and our own initiative to actually say, thank you for what you've done. Now, this is my part. I've got to run towards the airplane. Now, how many of you guys have seen a man and a woman run in an airplane, right? You know, they run a little differently. I always joke about Karen. It's like if she lifted her legs a little more, you know, we could move her arms. Yeah, so my girls... You know what doesn't help someone run faster? Run faster! I just, you know, I just, I, anyway. When scripture says, let us draw near, there is a sense of activity and intentionality. There are other words in scripture that, that are used that talks about our relationship with God. And, and these, are, these are pointed and direct words. In Hebrews 4, verse 11, it says, let us strive to enter that rest so that no one may fall by the same disobedience. Jesus actually uses these words in Luke where he says, strive to enter through the narrow door. For many, I tell you, will seek to enter but will not be able. Strive is, is a word that is full of effort and energy and exertion. Strive, the, the Greek word is agonismo, which, which out of which we get agony. It's, it's a strong and it's a powerful word. And you're like, hang on a second, Nick. This, this seems incongruent. Because what you're saying is like, I, I don't have to do anything. And at the same time, it says strive to enter his rest. So which is it? And I'm, I'm yes, it's, it's both. Your entrance into the throne of grace has been opened to you by the King of glory coming and walking as a dusty servant on this earth, being crucified, raised from the dead, seated at the right hand of the Father. Your job is to draw near with full assurance of faith an intentionality that says the way has been opened. I haven't had to do anything about that, but I do need to step forward. I do need to draw near. I do need to strive to enter that rest. There are things that I can do that will affect that. Dallas Willard says this, the path of spiritual growth in the riches of Christ is not a passive one. Grace is not opposed to effort, it is opposed to earning. Effort is an action, earning is an attitude. You have never seen people more active than those that have been set on fire by the grace of God. Paul, who perhaps understood grace better than any mere human being, looked back and what had happened to him and said, by the grace of God, I am what I am, and his grace toward me did not prove in vain, but I labored even more than all of them, yet not I, but the grace of God within me. Now I know, I know, some of you are like, how many times is he going to quote Dallas Willard? How many times is he going to quote this specific passage until it's no longer a reason to quote it. Because we, we, we can't stand on either side of the reality of like I do nothing or I do everything. It is the gr because of the grace of God that I've received, I take personal, intentional steps to be able to grow in my faith. It's a both and scenario. It's never one that we have to choose. 
I know some of you will rehearse an overstated theology that says, because nothing is required for salvation other than faith, therefore nothing is required to maintain it. That is true. However, that is not an attitude that bears fruit. I remember uh, I came to faith later on in my life, and I remember saying to a mentor of mine that I had met in high school before I was a, a Christian, and I, now I was in college, and I said, hey, I'm a Christian. And you know what he said to me? We'll see. <laughs> and, I mean, I was initially kind of a little offended by that. But Jesus said, you will know a tree by its fruit. And what he was saying is, he wasn't saying, like, I'm not excited about that. He was saying, if this momentous thing has happened to you, if you have been captured by the grace and mercy of God, if you recognize the Jesus that you serve, seated at the right hand of God, your life cannot be the same. So it will be easy to see. It wasn't like, oh, we'll see. It was like, we'll see. We'll see. The Spirit of God is in you. Your life is different. Your choices are different. How do we draw near? How do we strive without it becoming a dead work? How can we experience the finished work of Jesus? I mean, we, we know these things. We, we know that there is solitude. There's silence. There's study. There's journaling. There's prayer. We know we've taught about Sabbath, about wonder, about creation. And these are all ways that we can step in, that we can draw near. Worship, fasting, sacrificing our time, our energy, our money, confession, service. This may not seem this, but remember, we have been made competent ministers by the grace of God. Speaking of the hope that is within us is actually a means of grace because we can't do it on ourselves. The Spirit of God enables us to do that. Discipling someone is a means of grace to us. Now, right now, I know what's happening in some of your hearts. Right now, some of you are mad and frustrated. Right now, some of you are thinking, no. Been there, done that, doesn't work. Right now, some of you are are feeling condemned. Oh, shoot. This list is longer than I remember. <laughs> Some of you are like, okay, I'm going to re-engage. And even right now, the enemy is whispering, you, whispering at you, pointing at you in that line, saying, yeah, you've tried this before. How did that work out for you? I want to say right now, in Jesus' name, respond to the conviction of the Holy Spirit. Reject the condemnation of the enemy. These are means of grace. And this is not just a funny way to make it sound better than disciplines. These are means of grace. This is how you draw near. This is how you experience the fullness of what Jesus wants you to experience. These add pleasure and purpose to our lives. These are not contractual obligations that if we don't meet them, then suddenly our salvation is rendered null and void. These are not them. These are difficult. Some of them are easy. Some of them are hard. I spoke to the, the leaders yesterday. There, there are downstream disciplines and there are upstream disciplines. Downstream disciplines are things that you find easy. 
Upstream disciplines are things that are more difficult. This is the good news. The grace of God has appeared to us, teaching us to say no to ungodliness, teaching us to engage with these things. This is not something you can do on your own. Don't try and do this on your own. This is something you engage the Spirit with and say, God, what does it look like for me in this stage of my life to draw near to you? What is your invitation to me personally in this time? And then lastly, he's inviting us to be communally intentional. As we get to the security lines that are kind of snaking around like this, Karin is trying to avoid the snickering in the stairs, so she's looking at this guy that is in the line in front of her, and he has this, this totally stressed out look on his face. And she says, are you, are you okay? He says, I've got, I've got five minutes to make my flight, you know? So Karin, who is not bold and courageous necessarily, she says, excuse me. He only has five minutes to make his flight. Can you let him go? And he like steps back and he's like, no, 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 wait, I don't want to cause any problem. No, he only has five minutes. We have like 15 minutes. He only has five minutes. Can you let him go? And everyone was in it together. You know what I mean? When you are in those lines and you know that you can do something to help a fellow passenger make his flight, most of us want to do whatever we can. And literally the lines parted, and he went there, and I remember him going through, he was so happy, he was waving at us, you know what I mean? And we we're like, you need to go, just run, you know? We're in this together. I mean, we could have been really focused. Car and I could have been like, I can't believe these people. I can't believe what's happening to us. No one understands that this is not our fault. Everything is like so inwardly focused. And no. She's like, what, what's happening? Are you okay? What? And, then, and then out of her personality and character, decides to do so. We're in this together. And that's what the writer of Hebrews is, is saying. And let us consider how to stir up. Again, these are strong words. Sharpen, spur on, provoke one another to love and good words, uh, works. Not neglecting, forsaking, or abandoning meeting together as some are in the habit of doing, but encouraging one another all the more as you see the day approaching. I mean, it's both encouraging and discouraging that even the early church is being told, hey, you, you guys have got to, Meet together, you know. Now, they had some more compelling reasons than us not to meet together. They were being actively persecuted. They were being actively isolated and shunned. Uh, in the context of Hebrews, there wasn't yet a sense of persecution through death, though that was common throughout the Christian church. But even the writer of Hebrews is saying, I'm recognizing that you guys are choosing not to gather together. Don't neglect that. It's important. I'm also recognizing that you are here, and this is part of you not neglecting that. But I, I think our reasons are a little more difficult. I think sometimes our reasons for neglecting is that this is hard. It's hard. Our, our lives are so demanding. We don't just have to grow a field of wheat, crush some grapes, take some things to the market, Maybe send our sons off to war, a little different. No, our lives are more complex. They're more emotionally burdensome than they were physically burdensome. We recognize that. 
maybe for a lot of us, this isn't new and exciting anymore. I remember a friend of mine said when, um, never mind, this isn't new and exciting anymore. I think for a lot of us, personal autonomy rather than communal responsibility has begun to shift a little more. I don't like this or I do like that versus the idea of I actually live in a community of faith with believers where my actions or inactions affect somebody else. And we have a desire for comfort and convenience. I looked at one of my journals from two years ago and I, I wrote in there, I have an overdeveloped commitment to my own comfort. <laughs> I, I do. I, I look for ways to make my life more comfortable. I don't know that I'm looking for ways to stir up, sharpen, spur, provoke other people to love and good works. I also have a challenge that I want to be loved and accepted. And the reality is, is that in a Jesus-believing, Bible-based Christian church, that is less likely to be the case in our society more and more and more. I'm much less likely to be accepted. Man, I've already started praying about this election. I'm like, oh God, at least we don't have COVID and an election, right? But my prayer for us as a community is, God, can you protect us, prevent us from making secondary issues primary? Can you remind us that we are brothers and sisters? Can you remind us that ultimately we are sojourners and aliens? And that these are the group of people that have committed themselves to the same things that you have, that are drawing near to the same throne of grace. I mean, there's some hard reasons why meaning together is difficult. Unforgiveness. Deep wounds by this community. And those wounds are deeper because this community is meant to be a place of love and acceptance. Meant to be a place where, where you can just be together in love and good works. And when you're hurt in a community like this, it's really hard to recover. And probably the biggest thing, Car and I talk about all the time, I don't need you and I don't belong. Makes it hard. Makes it hard in the context of a life group. Makes it hard in the context of our gatherings. How can, how can we do this? How can we be like to that guy who needed to go to Boston? How can we be that to each other? Well, the mere act of gathering as a worshiping community is something that is encouraging to others. I was with a young couple and I was just saying, what are, what are some of the ways in which God ministers to you? And she said to me, just being in a gathering on a Sunday morning is God ministering to me. Now, that isn't true for me because I have so many multiple different roles. I mean, I, I enjoy it, but not, not in the sense in which it's like, ah, oh, yes. It was, it was new to me. I was like, oh, great. <laughs> I guess that's the point, right? <laughs> Family chores, we are a family. I would say that I was chatting with someone the other day and they were, they were talking about our, our music team. 
And I said, yeah, we, we have four music teams. He's like, four music teams? How many people do you have? I said, about 150 people come on a Sunday. He's like, what? It's like, I am in a church of over 300 people. I can't even get people to volunteer, like to do those things. I'm like, wow, man, I hear that. I kind of, yeah, that's right. That's right. That's not anything I do. That's because, that's because you have understood what it means to be part of a family. And when we're part of a family, we contribute with family chores. You know, when, when Megan and I, Michaela and I do the volunteer appreciation thing, it's 80% of the church. 80% of the church is serving in some way to make this gathering a reality. What a joy. What a joy. Words of encouragement, whether they are public or private. I said to someone the other week, I, I want to hear you say something critical one day, just for the heck of it, you know what I mean? Because this person is so encouraging. And it's not flattery. It's not flattery. It is specific encouragement. And I'm like, man, if I wasn't here, I wouldn't have received that. Outside, after the prayer gathering, people sit down praying for each other. I don't even know what's happening. I'm so thrilled that it's happening. Words of challenge and truth. Words of challenge and truth need to happen privately and sensitively. But that's also what helps us grow. That's also how we spur one another on, how we, how we sharpen one another. A safe place to confess, to listen, to provide healing and to provide prayer. Now we're talking about two people in this church that when they say, I will pray for you, it's not a way of ending a sentence. It's not kind of a, a throwaway popcorn prayer. We know that if these people say, I'm praying for you, I know they're praying for me. What a gift. What a gift. I feel spurred on. I feel encouraged. I feel sharpened. People that look beyond their life stations. People that are includers. Jimmy and Melissa are great examples of this. It's like, we're not like you. We don't know you. We're not on your same life station, but we want to include you in what we do. Not single, not married, not kids. Yeah, we, we connect and we, we have more things in common with people that are single or people that are married but one of the joys of being in a community like this is, is we get to go outside of those things. We get to invite single people to our home for a meal. We get to babysit people that have children so that they can go on a meal. Look beyond our life stations. And then recognize and call out the gifts that God has given each one of us for our God-given mission. I said to someone the other day, man, you are such an includer. You just want to include everyone in everything that you do. This wasn't necessarily a church thing. This was, you, you have a gift. This is something that you should use more and more. Well, we can do that. It's not flattery. It's actually saying, man, you, you have this. God wants to use that in you. Band, you can come up. Last week, I heard about a couple, young believers in the context of our church, and they had committed to being personally intentional. 
by drawing near with the grace of God. And they committed to waking up early, spending time together, reading the Word of God. And then they realized, there's some stuff in here we don't understand. So then they engaged the community. And they, they did their personal responsibility, and then they engaged the community, and they went to their life group, and they said, hey, can we ask you some questions about what we're learning? Can I tell you, that excites me. It excites me for a number of reasons. One, I didn't have anything to do with it. Not because I don't want to, not because I don't want to, but because it means that the Spirit of God is doing something in our community. It means that once you take personal initiative in the means of grace, there are people around you that can help you with that. And it doesn't need to be me or Mitch or anybody that is uh, professional. We are all able to spur one another on, to, spur, to stir each other towards love and good works. And I want to encourage you. Maybe, maybe you're here this morning and you're like, God, I need confidence to draw near. Because every time I draw near, I hear the yelling and the shouting or the whispering and the mocking. I need your confidence to draw near. Maybe this morning the Spirit of God has hovered over you and saying, these means of grace, don't see it as a whip. See it as an invitation to draw near to a new and living way. Or maybe God is encouraging you to just take a deeper step into community. To actually say, I want to be a person that stirs up, that sharpens, that provokes one another. I want to be a person that, that encourages this community that God has made me a member of. And I want to grow this community by being a minister of the grace of God. And the sufficiency of that does not rest on me. Let's pray. Jesus, we are so deeply grateful. So deeply grateful even now we know that you are seated at the right hand of God making intercession for us, praying for us. We know that we have confidence into this new and living way. We know that you have filled our hearts. You have changed our hearts of stone to hearts of flesh. We have confidence to draw near. And I want to pray that if you've walked in here and you don't know that confidence, you don't know the fact that you have relationship with God through Jesus Christ, you don't know for certain that, that when you approach His throne of grace, there will be that invitation of mercy for you. I would love to have the opportunity to pray for you. I'm going to be on the left with the rest of our leaders. If you feel like God is stirring in you, I, I need to be healed from some of the hurts of community. We'd love to pray for you. If God is stirring within you and saying, hey, please help me. God is inviting me to be more personally intentional. Pray for me that I would step into this. If God is calling you just into a deeper investment in this body, we want to pray for you. Let's stand together and sing.
I want to invite those of you that are followers of Jesus to the table. We started this morning. We are set free by the blood of Jesus Christ and by his flesh torn on the cross. That's what we celebrate. I want to invite you. There's a table at the back, two at the side. The front has wine. We're going to continue that song. And again, we're going to have our leaders to the left, to the right, to the left, your right. Yeah, let's go to the table of our Lord. We celebrate not a man who died for our sins, but a man who died and was resurrected, seated at the right hand of the Father, and is present with us as we celebrate this meal. His body broken for you. Let's eat. represents his shed blood we take it with a sense of privilege take it with a sense of weight we also take it with a sense of celebration this is the blood of the new covenant take and drink Jesus you are our living hope you are not an idea academic um, passing out of a set of myths and morals you are our king you live to make intercession for us you flooded us with the Holy Spirit and I want to pray this morning that we would we would come boldly before your throne of grace to find grace and mercy in our time of needs and we would leave equally boldly into this world to be able to be those competent ministers of the grace of God not of the flesh but of the spirit I pray this in your name Amen let's go out there and be the church Thank you for listening to the Mercy Commons podcast. If you enjoyed today's content, please rate us and hit subscribe. And if you'd like to learn more about us, visit our website at mercycommons.church.